just a little love note to all of our loyal free cookie listeners and to anyone who might be new to the show. This is an ad-free podcast. And we want to keep it that way. We want to make sure that we can just give you guys the awesome content, the great interviews. and Without the stuff that you have to fast forward. But in order to do that, we need your support. So if you could join us over at patreon.com forward slash free cookies and become a patron of the show, there are many tiers that you can join. You can throw us a dollar, you can do five. And it turns out we're going to start putting some content up for those of you who are hardcore free cookie supporters. We're going to make this worth your while. So if there's some of you out there who just listen to the show, and you feel like, hey, you know what? I could, I could spend two, three bucks a month. Great. If you guys need a little something as incentive, we're going to put some videos up on Patreon that are going to be exclusive to those of you who are free cookie monsters. And I mean, we're talking some good content. Like I'm going to take you inside my sneaker closet, like that kind of content, you know? And I will contribute recipes and perhaps every now and then our dog will give you a soliloquy. So again, that is patreon.com forward slash free cookies. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Catherine Budig. And I'm Kate Fagan. And this is Free Cookies, a humorous podcast filled with thoughtful conversations and offering delicious takeaways. And today. And today, I, I want to apologize ahead of time for the amazing guest that we have that this is what I'm going to preface her interview with. Preface. Well, should we uh, should we just announce her first so at least we get that out of the yes. way? Okay. So we have the amazing Megha Majumdar, the author of the debut novel, a burning New York Times bestselling novel. It's phenomenal. And she is possibly, we have not met in person yet, but we've spoken many times. And she is just, I want to scoop her up and put her on an ice cream comb and eat her. Speaking of things that you want, you scoop up. Okay. <laughs> wow, that segue was amazing. Poor Megha. Okay. Again, Mega, I love you, and we're going to get back to classy conversations, but y'all, let's keep it real in the free cookies house, and this is what's been going on. So you may remember, dedicated listeners of free cookies, the episode where I confessed as a young girl when I would go into bookstores that I would... (laughs) had this wave of needing to poop come over me. I don't know. There's just something so stimulating about being around books that I would just have to go poop. And after Catherine shared this story, I unequivocally felt that she was alone in this experience. And it turns out, turns out there's super solidarity going on with having to poop when you're in a bookstore. We got at least half a dozen emails <laughs> of... Women, they were all women. I don't know if this is a gender thing. Perhaps it happens to men too, but all women saying that that same thing happens to them. And now Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of if we break down the statistics on this, if we got half a dozen emails from our listenership, I mean, this could be something that happens to thousands of people out there. Thousands. Thousands of people. An epidemic of have the bookstore poops. (laughs) So to keep it in that vein. We're doing some more data also, research. We're doing more data research. And many of you already know about our dog, Ashi. Ashi the asshole. Mm-hmm. And she's truly lovely. But we also have another dog, Kiona, who does not have a nickname. It's Kiona. Period. Well, she's got nicknames. She she's, does, well, she doesn't have one like the asshole. No, though. it's like Fluffy Mellow, the Marshmallow. She's a husky. Yeah. So she's a big white floof ball. And she's been this... Very special thing has been happening, you guys. It's been going on for... Since quarantine, basically. Since quarantine, so this might be emotional. Um, But she's a husky, which means that the hair around her booty is very fluffy. And 
uh, we got her this new pimped out dog bed and it's pale pink because she has white hair and so it doesn't show the hair as much. But she's been, since quarantine, leaving us little gifts. Every morning, I would say, well, not every morning, every other morning when it's we wake three, up. It's been three mornings in a row so far this week. There is a, I would say, a dime-sized little poopy in her bed. <laughs> not a poop. So think about the mystery of this. It's, it's not, not smushed. It's not runny. It's like a like a legit little Tootsie Roll, like the bite-sized Tootsie if you, Roll. If you, if you smushed a bite-sized Tootsie Roll, this is what it looks like. And I'm like... Where is this coming from? Did she poop out a tiny little bit in the middle of the night? And and how is that little Tootsie Roll always getting stuck to her husky booty? It's a mystery. <laughs> it, it's, it's a mystery. So this is data research. So if you have a husky or a bigger dog and you're like, or a oh, fluff, a fluffy booty dog. Oh my God, this happens to us. Please just email us at freecookiespodcast at, at gmail.com. Because we're worried. And today. And so back on track. <laughs> okay, but quickly before we get to Mega, and it really is an awesome interview where we speak eloquently. This is a highbrow interview, and so, I would like to like In a sophisticated to manner about the written word. Um, before that, like this episode, um, it happens to be a really quick turnaround. Um, so we're talking on Wednesday and this will drop on Thursday. So it kind of, it gives us an opportunity to talk about something in the news right now. And and it's sporty spice time. I haven't been with ESPN for a year and a half, and I just got to flex these muscles. But no, I think a lot of our listeners, some will have heard that a group of mostly women have- I think 100% women, isn't it? Uh, majority women, no, because Serena's okay. husband is part of the ownership group. That's what I call him, Serena's husband. He doesn't have a name, right? He used go. to be like so-and-so's wife, and she didn't have a name, but now we've reversed it. Okay. Um, no, Alexis. Um He's part of the ownership group. But anyway, there's a new club in the National Women's Soccer League that is, for the first time, majority female-owned. And on top of that, it's backed by so many Hollywood stars, famous athletes. Natalie Portman. Yeah, Natalie Portman, Jessica Chastain, just to name a few. A few. Then athletes, Serena Williams, Abby, Abby Wambach, Wambach, Glennon Doyle, who was on the opening Who's episode. Who's technically not an athlete. She's Spirit Spice. Uh, yes. So she, but, but also Natalie Portman and Jessica Chastain aren't technically athletes. So, you know, true, but you were talking about celebrities first. So if you're right, like I put Glennon, Glennon in the wrong camp, I put Glenn, I'm Glennon just saying if Glennon's camp. listening, she's going to want to make sure she's on the right team. So, just quickly before we get to mega though, if you haven't seen this news, it's awesome. Cause for someone who worked at ESPN and there'd be, there'd be so much, um, poo-pooing women's sports, female athletes. Not, not the husky kind. It was like, it's like dime-sized Tootsie Roll poo-pooing that they were doing. <laughs> but to see this kind of like superstar backing of a franchise, you often don't see it except in like the NBA. You right. know, you'd have like Will Smith coming in on the ownership group somewhere. And this is the kind of thing that casts a spotlight on women's sports and like a cultural halo where everyone's like, oh, like now everyone, this LA team, everyone's like, I can't, wait, Natalie Portman, Jessica Chastain, Serena Williams, like, I kind of want to be a part of this thing. Mm-hmm. Instead of it being like, oh, the WNBA is happening over here and nobody watches it. It's like, no, this is the cool place to be. It's sexy. And Angel yeah. City is the name of the team? For right? now, yeah. For now. Yeah. Angel City FC. Um, you just check it out. Because I, I know our free cookies listeners, like, they'd be into something like this. Yeah, they've got some kind of cool trailers that they've been floating around. You can find it on Abby Wambach's page yeah. if you want to get fired up. Get far- so we went from Kiona Tootsie Roll Poops to the new LAFC FC soccer franchise to 
now, our esteemed guest. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Megha. Um, we're really excited to bring Megha on. And of course, as this entire season has gone and will continue to go, you do not have to read these books before listening no. to these authors. Um, Megha is so spectacular. I also had the privilege to speak with Megha and Madeline Miller, which many of you have probably listened to our interview with her this season. I spoke with them for uh, Midtown Scholar, mm -hmm. which is an amazing indie bookstore, and that is up on YouTube. So I will make sure to share that link on our free Cookies podcast Instagram page. Oh, you, you took on the voice of... And today. And today. So should we bring Mega? I think we should probably. Uh -huh. Mega, if you listen to the opening, we both are sorry and we hope you enjoyed it, I think. Maybe we're, we're are we apologizing or are we just going to be like super confident in who we are and be like, you know what, Mega, that was some great content leading into you. I just hope that Mega has a long haired dog with similar problems to Kiona and then it's all going to be. Then she'll have seen the value together exactly. in this opening segment. No, you're not alone. All right, let's bring her on. Megha Majumdar was born and raised in Calcutta, India. She moved to the United States to attend college at Harvard University, followed by graduate school in social anthropology at John Hopkins University. She works as an editor at Catapult and lives in New York City. A Burning, which is now a New York Times bestseller, is her first Right, we are joined with Mekha. Hello, welcome to Free Cookies. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. I can't believe I get to chat with two superstars. <laughs> oh, you're so sweet. Um, so Mekha, we got to chat uh, about a week ago for Midtown Scholar, the event, which um, we talked, it was you and me and Madeline Miller, and that event is now up on YouTube, and I'll, I'll post on social for anyone who wants to go and watch the interview. But Mekha, I mean, you've had this runaway hit debut novel and I was taking a look at the list of um, you know your virtual book tour that you were doing and who you were doing interviews with and you've done event well we know Madeline Miller uh, you did an event with Sue Monkhead <gasps> you did an yes. event with Britt <laughs> Bennett I mean it, as I'm just curious, and, as and a they did events with Mega so. exactly <laughs> just but as a, a debut novelist I, I mean, do you pinch yourself? That is an unbelievable lineup. I mean, I just, what, will you talk us through what How this experience been, yeah. has been like? Oh my God, it has been <laughs> so wild. You know, I, I really can't believe that all of these incredible writers agreed to chat with me. Um, like when Madeline Miller agreed to come on board for our event, I got an email asking, you know, if it was okay that, that she joined and I was like is it okay <laughs> you know um I think for me I really saw them as chances to chat with people who are so deeply engaged in the craft who have just achieved these incredible levels of success and connecting with their readers and a chance to learn from them you know how do they think about different craft elements how do they think about writing what is their advice for somebody like me who has really only written one book so far um, so it's been incredible. And I have to say that, 
you know, I would have totally understood if any of these people had been like, you know, we have event fatigue. We've done a million events. <laughs> like, thank you. Maybe later. But just the, just the fact that they agreed to do this when, you know, they really don't need more events. I think that was so generous of them. So, so Mega, I know, I know the bio that you can read on paper and, and having gone undergrad to Harvard and then a master's in social anthropology from Johns Hopkins and now this debut novel. Is it fair to say that you consider yourself 100% a writer or are there other parts of your interests and in, in what you want to do that, that we're missing? So how, how do you think of like whatever you quote unquote your career is? Hmm, that is such a great question. I... You know, I work as an editor in addition to being a writer, and I definitely see myself as someone whose work is nourished by editing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's been it's been an interesting path going from anthropology to fiction. But I think the more that I think about it, the more I feel that there are instruments in the anthropologist's toolkit that are so vital for a fiction writer. You know, anthropology is all about going out into the world mm. and doing fieldwork and listening to other people's perspectives um, and listening for complexity and surprise. That is so crucial. And that is all stuff that I think a fiction writer finds so energizing and helpful. Um, so anthropology was definitely a good start. And now that I work as an editor, you know, it's just the best feeling. Like you, Catherine, and you, Kate, you are doing this work of, of lifting up writers and, you know, boosting the work of people. And I, I get to do that, you know, in such a similar way in my work as an editor of working very closely with people that when I read their books, I feel like, okay, I have to press this into the hands of everyone that I know. This book is that good. <laughs> yes. You know, you have that feeling, you have that energy, and then you do your best to lift it up, which, I, you know, it's, it's a lot of good energy. I mean, how, how do you feel about that? I couldn't agree more. I, I think that, especially with writers and anyone who's listening to this who has written or has tried to write something, I think we can all commiserate in the blood, sweat, and tears that goes into it. And that it's a baby. You're, you're forming a baby. And, and like you said, through the studies, the anthropological studies, and I actually... Um, was nodding when you were saying that because I found this quote from the New Yorker um, spread that was written about you and a burning. And the writer said, I can't remember when I last read a novel that so quickly dismantled the ordinary skepticism that attends the reading of made-up stories. And I just found myself highlighting that when I was reading it because that was something so, like your characters came off of the page. And I did find myself forgetting that I was reading a piece of fiction so, I mean, I realize I'm not totally answering your question there because I do think it's so important to lift up writers. Can I, oh, can I jump in? Because I, I, when you, I had a follow-up, if that's okay. Yeah. Can I jump in? Uh, mm -hmm. you, Megan, you, you just kind of outlined briefly for both us and our listeners what social anthropology is, but I don't quite know what, like someone who is a social anthropologist, like what do they study and how does that live in the real world? And if if you can, did can you share with us how you saw that degree directly influencing a burning? 
Oh, good question. Uh, so social anthropology, I'm so glad you asked because before I started studying it, I had no clue that it existed and I didn't know what it was. I keep thinking it's archaeology, college, but it's not archaeology. <laughs> Probably slightly You're different. Right. So, <laughs> so part of anthropology is archaeology, but social anthropology is a totally different part, which is all about, it's kind of, think sociology, but with more fieldwork with mm. more travel and being with other people in other communities. So, for example, you know, I had friends who were studying subjects like pilgrimage routes in North Africa and the women-led businesses that spring up along these pilgrimage routes. I had another friend who was studying glaciers and knowledge that's coming out of scientists studying glaciers as well as local villagers living with those glaciers. So it's a kind of social study, which is all about focusing on a particular community, looking at how people live, the moral choices that they make, hmm. and trying to understand what it is like to be another person and hold another place in the world. So it is really in really profound ways about empathy and understanding, but also crucially about recognizing the limits of yourself as an outsider. So acknowledging hmm. that you are an outsider in these communities, acknowledging that you are coming in with textbook knowledge, which, you know, you have to make that effort. You have to do that work of relating your knowledge and listening to the people who live it. So when you wrote your book, did you feel like the outsider as the author or did you feel like you were in that world while you were writing it? You know, I, I think it's a mix of both. In many ways, the characters that I was writing about were, of course, so different from me. You know, I made them up. Their life arcs are different from my life arc. Um, but in other ways, I also felt that I was drawing on what I had observed um, and learned from growing up in India. You know, I wanted to write a book that was so attentive to how people in hard places have a particular kind of intelligence and a particular kind of humor. You know, when you live within systems that don't serve you, don't work for you, you constantly have to find your own solutions. You have mm -hmm. to figure out your own path forward. Um, and that reality felt pretty familiar to me. And there's, you know, there's always the more fun stuff. Like I, I wanted to write about stuff that I enjoyed, like train rides in India and the community that springs up there and, you know, the scene of a guava seller at the corner of the street <laughs> that you have a relationship with, that kind of thing. And you grew up in Calcutta, correct? That's right. Yeah. I, 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 I'm so curious to know what it was like. I, I, I love my Hindu mythology and Kali is one of my favorite Hindu goddesses. Um, oh my God. And so I, I would just love any insider information on Kali and what it was like growing up in Calcutta. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, that's so funny that you say that. There's a big Kali temple um, that we, you know, went by all the time, pretty close to where I grew up. Um, Kolkata was, you know, since it's summer now, I keep thinking about the feeling of leaving school at the end of the afternoon. And I don't know what it was like for you. I really want to hear. But that that feeling of leaving school at 3 p.m., it's so hot out and outside you have these rows of vendors who are selling ice cream and candies and all of the stuff that appeals to school kids. And we would buy these terrible orange ice candies. Ooh, um, terrible. You know? That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> They were, we would joke that they were made with dirty water and stuff like that, but they were so inexpensive and you, you could just like suck the orange syrup and have an mm. ice bar left. Um, and it was the most refreshing thing. And then you would share it with your friends and chat about your day. And um, it was, yeah, it was, you know, the, the textures of that time stay with me so powerfully. What was, what was school and growing Not- up like for you? I think I think the overlap there is that any young person thinking back on that time period, I feel like the the memories feel more visceral than any other time period. And food is and a very big part of memory for me too. It's a little. It's probably a little less sensual because I feel like I would go home and have like peanut butter and jelly crackers or something, and I would go to Hoagie Haven and eat a Hoagie. Yeah. <laughs> So maybe less colorful in my imagination, but still, but still powerful in the same way in terms of like remembering those feelings and emotions and like this, this, the swirling kind of, um, energy of it. Yeah. Okay. But, but, but yeah, it may get the best part about you bringing up the memories with food. Okay. So I just have to, yeah, I have to jump in because, um, you know, a lot of people dog ear pages or mark pages that they think are beautiful. And I'm doing that. But in addition, I'm dog earing pages where you have some sort of street food that just blows my mind in this book. <laughs> so just for our listeners who haven't read A Burning yet, like here's an example of one. Uh, so this is from page, I'm actually quoting the page, 102. <laughs> Outside the air smells of fried food. A vendor dips lentil balls in a dark wok filled with oil and sells paper bowls full alongside a cilantro and green chili chutney. Oh. And I just got to tell you that like that is not the kind of street food. Well, one, I didn't get street food in my little suburban neighborhood. And two, I'm just used to like a hot dog bun and hot dogs. I know. So um, it's, it's kind of thirst trapping a lot of uh, a lot of like delicious street food. But is the street food as good it. as it sounds? Or did like you just meant you kind of alluded in your earlier answer that like you still as kids might think that the food was like, oh, maybe it's cooked in bad oil or it's not that great. Yeah. Like, is the street food in India as good as it's sounding? It is so good but I don't know if it is good for you so very often (laughs) it's you know oil that has been reused and you look at the vessel in which it's cooked and it's unclear when it was last washed and so you know you grow up you know with these jokes and just kind of assuming that the food you're eating is terrible for you but you often give in to temptation and and eat it anyway and I'm so I'm so glad that we are um talking about food, especially in in this time, because I was just thinking about how I think in the pandemic, when we're all at home, I have started feeling like meals are one of the few chances to have a festive moment in an ordinary day. 
Yes. Are you feeling that way? 100%. Yeah, it's, Meg, it's gotten to the point where on like on the random days where maybe we order food, it's almost like something has been missed. Like yeah. the, the making of it. The cathartic t- yeah. time in the kitchen. Yeah. And the camaraderie yeah. of it. Like when we order food, I'm always like, oh, it's just going to show up. But I like that hour of us like talking and cooking. And it just feels like yeah. the one, the galvanizing moment that we have right now. And that it's been Absolutely. so powerful for us. And I was just cutting mm-hmm. into a mango before we called you. And I was thinking of the the, the mango that you put up on your Instagram the other day as, I, as I sit here <laughs> trying to pick it out of my teeth. <laughs> but it is like the small moments of just like, where can you find joy? And in those moments, can you just fully give yourself to them? And I, yeah. I do feel like those experiences with everything going on right now, well, books and food, actually, those yeah. are truly, mm-hmm. those are my islands right now. Your islands, yeah. I like that. Yeah, um, islands. I love that. Mega, what I know, as I mentioned earlier, you you maybe you came to the U.S. before 2006, but it you started college, right? Or you graduated college in in 2006? I started college in 2006. So was it? Can you share with us your your quote unquote journey getting to the U.S.? Was it always a place where you thought you would go to school? Like, how did it come about that that you went to college here in the U.S.? Oh, it was such a journey. You know, I, at the time that I started thinking about this, um, I was in high school in India and nobody around me was really going abroad for studies. It was still quite unusual at the time. And I started thinking about it because I felt like I wanted a more rigorous education than I was getting. Um, And I wanted a chance to disagree with texts and argue with texts. So I knew I wanted to look at schools abroad. And then it was this whole long journey of researching different colleges, figuring out what the SATs were, Mm -hmm. figuring out what the common app was and what I needed to do. Um, It was a lot of hard work preparing for this alongside my high school studies and engagements. And, you know, the big thing for me was, I worked so hard because I knew that I would only be able to go to a school abroad if I got um, full financial aid. It was Mm. beyond our reach otherwise. So I could only apply to these schools, which were incredibly competitive and had very generous financial aid. Um, So I knew that, you know, either I get in or I don't, you know. Um, But So, Mega, what was your um, college essay? Oh, Oh, <laughs> I don't know if I've thought about this in like years, but it's so funny that you ask. Um, I think I wrote about the importance of travel. Mm. Yeah, I think I wrote something about how, you know, travel isn't frivolous. It is political and everybody should have a chance to do it or something like that. <laughs> that sounds good. That sounds like it would... Open some eyes at the Harvard Admission Board. It worked. It worked. <laughs> it worked. So when did you have the aha, or it was maybe there wasn't an aha moment, but when did you decide, like, I'm going to sit down and write a novel? You know, did, did these characters, and, and for anyone who's listening who hasn't read A Burning yet, it's, it's set in this multi-perspectivity style, and there's three characters, and they're these short, each chapter that's written is short and punchy from the perspective of one of these characters. We have Jivan, who is um, a young, poor Muslim girl who is 
uh, jailed incorrect incorrectly. That's not falsely. Word, falsely. Thank you. Um, we have <laughs> lovely, which lovely. Oh, we got to talk. Oh, wait, but I first, know. I want to know the answer to the question you're asking about. Like, when did this novel start to? Right. Well, lovely and PT sir. We'll talk more about the characters later, but they all have these incredibly strong personalities that jump off the page and, and like the New Yorker said it very you much you very much forget that you're reading a piece of fiction and you intimately get to know these characters and and the turmoil that they're going through that links them all together but keeps them separate at the same time and you know did you have these kind of character like nebulous ideas of these characters floating around in your head for a long time or did you like did they come to you in a dream or did you you know like how <laughs> how did this all come to be you know, I think I started writing from a place of watching what was happening in India with the rise of the right, the rise of extremism and hate crimes and intolerance. And I felt that I wanted to write something about how people pursue big dreams in such a situation. Um, and so I had that core idea and... I think as as you probably know from from being writers yourselves there's never you don't know that you can write the book until you write the book <laughs> yes. you know and then at some point you find that you do have the discipline to come back to this one story every day you realize that you've been coming back to this story over the past months and at some point that becomes years and you find that you don't really want to focus on any other story this is the story you want to sharpen and finesse and, and keep tinkering with um so I think it was when I got to the end of a draft that I felt I could stand behind that I felt like, okay, I wrote a book. Um, it felt like a big idea from the start. So I wanted to give it the space and time of a novel, which, which probably helped. Um, but I'm so curious to hear your response. Like, do you have, do you know exactly what you're writing when you sit down to write it? <laughs> uh, Kate and I have very different experiences with that, actually. Um, when I'm working on fiction with the with the novel that I'm on my third draft of right now, I do feel like the characters talk to me. I I, mm. I will have a a general idea of like this is where I want the scene to go or this is going you know the ballpark arc of the story. But there have been mm -hmm. many instances when I sit down where I know at the end of the scene I want this to happen, but I don't know what the contents is going to be. And so I just kind of sit there and see, try to step into their skin and wonder what, what would they say? How would they be interacting? But I know Kate had a very, has a very different experience when it comes to writing fiction. Well, yeah, I, well, I think first I'd have to say that most of my work is in narrative nonfiction. And mm -hmm. I thought, oh, because it's narrative nonfiction and, you know, I'm, I'm writing scenes and I'm trying to make it like a, read like fiction that, Therefore, if I make mm -hmm. the jump and I try to write fiction, I'm already going to have that skill set. That's what I thought. And it turned out that that leap is a much wider gulf than I thought, because it's one mm -hmm. thing to reflect back on, reflect to people or build a hologram of a real person. And it's another to build someone completely from scratch and inject them with motivations and character traits that actually feel real to a reader. And that, so that, so the times I've written fiction, I probably didn't, I know I didn't do enough 
work in advance of like outlining and understanding my characters, I just figured, oh, it'll just spring to life because that's what happens. So, mm-hmm. but I think, you know, the, the, probably at the start of free cookies, I forget who we were talking to where the idea of like being a gardener or an architect was introduced as, you know, it's, it's obviously not oh, mutually. Philip Pullman. Was it Philip Pullman? Yeah, I think Philip but Pullman. I think he might have been stealing oh it from God. someone else. Oh, we, we haven't talked to Philip Pullman, but that no, would be pretty rad. we didn't talk rad. to him, but we read a book of his. <laughs> and we have his book. But obviously you can be in between these two, but saying that some writers are gardeners and that like the, the thing is growing and it's alive mm-hmm. and they're just making sure to get the weeds out of the way and like not interfere with it. Mm-hmm. And I think Catherine mm-hmm. would relate to that. Yes. Whereas, and I'm still getting to know my characters and that's why I recommend going back and going back and going back because you think, you know, in the beginning, yeah, but you haven't finished the complete arc of the story yet. And you have to sit with that and be like, you know what? They wouldn't have done this. This is wrong. I need to go back and change that. And then the, and then some writers are architects where they, the the characters don't speak to them and, but they've done so much work in advance and they've like plotted and put everything into place that then they can build it. And Mm -hmm. do do you have, do you relate to one of those? Wow, both of those are so interesting. I feel like for a burning, I I didn't really have an outline, but I did have something that I found very valuable, which is I had these kernels, which were images of high emotion. For example, one of the early images mm. that I had for the book, which has actually now become quite peripheral in the book, but I hope it's still present, is this image of a child fleeing on a train in order to make their mother's life better in some way to pursue something for their parent Mm -hmm. and that place of a child seeking to protect their guardian understanding that they are in a role where it is now their responsibility to be you know their parents parent in some way um that emotion felt really important to me. And so I had a bunch of these images that are not really outlines, but they are places where, you know, you approach them and you feel moved, you know, Mm -hmm. and you are able to write from the energy of that place. You're able to draw that out into a narrative and then kind of, you know, bring your structure and craft to it as much as possible and, you know, full fill it out into a full narrative. Um, Yeah. But those are really interesting ways of thinking about it. Speaking of, you know, pulling the emotion out of it that you, so you write from the the perspective of these three characters and then you sprinkle these interludes throughout the book. And I wanted to talk to you when we did the event the other week about this and didn't have time to, but the interlude that you wrote about the villagers visit the beef eater, um, Mm -hmm. where, this Muslim family gets brutally attacked and murdered. And it, Megha, I mean, I <laughs> I have written at the end of it. I marked it and I just have wow, period, written mm. at the end of this so interlude. So poetic. I know, mm. I'm, I'm super poetic. <laughs> but I, I just, I had to sit the book down for a little bit after I wrote this because I, I want to know what mm. it was like. And, and y'all, just to keep in mind, this is probably 500 words. I mean, it's two, two and a half pages, this interlude. And... Mm-hmm. It is poetic, it is terrifying, it is raw, it is um, so much illumination on hate crime that is going on in India. And I just wanted to know, what what were these two and a half pages like for you to write? Mm. I am so glad they spoke to you. I 
I worked really hard on them. One one consideration that I had was, you know, it's um it's a moment of great violence mm-hmm. and I wanted the reader to understand enough of this world so that when they come to this most ugly face of this hatred that the whole book has been kind of swirling around that it feels like they understand it with complexity and that it's not just something to to shock them um and it was it was really hard you know it was it was kind of hard and ugly but i felt that if i if I refused to look it in the eye, then perhaps the book would be shying away from what it had set as its own ambition. Um, so it was it was really hard, but I wanted to make sure that especially, I mean, throughout the book, but especially in that chapter, every single sentence felt necessary. Yes. That, I, that completely <laughs> came across that yeah. way. And your ability to... I'm always impressed when the author doesn't shy away from the shadow and doesn't shy away from writing something that is honest and, and dirty. And, and you just, you did it in such a way of showing the two perspectives that, I, I, I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't know how to talk about it more without handing the book to people. <laughs> yeah. But, well, so. For, Thank for, you so much. For our listeners, can you articulate for us and for, and for them what the idea of, of what the Indian dream is? Is it the mm. same as the American dream or how, and also mm. how has India changed in ways that perhaps Americans who are often so ignorant of what's happening in other countries, how has the ground shifted beneath India in, in the last 15 to 20 years in the ways that inspired a burning? Those are huge questions. Um, I can only speak from my limited perspective. So I'll say that um, the Indian dream, I don't know if that exists in in the vocabulary, at least in the vocabulary that I was familiar with in the way that the American dream is a very commonly recognized thing to talk about. Mm -hmm. I think in this book, I wanted to see how people just want to have greater opportunities. You know, they simply want to have, it might mean a reliable water supply. It might mean being able to afford slightly nicer food. It might mean not having to wade through a flooded street on your way to work. Mm -hmm. Um, So people just want slightly better circumstances than what they have. And I think that drive, that will to say, well, I deserve better. I want a better life. I'm not going to accept what this society tells me I I have to resign myself to. I think that is such a form of resistance. So mm-hmm. that and chasing a wild dream of, you know, being a movie star like one of the characters <laughs> in this book does, that is too such a form of joyous resistance to say, I deserve that. I'm going to pursue it. Um, so that's the kind of, dreaming that I wanted to write about um yeah there was a second question which and, and I'm forgetting right sorry, now sorry I know multi-part that questions question. are never great but <laughs> has has in I think I read somewhere perhaps it was like um there was a an, an incredible spread about the book in foreign policy of all places it had that beautiful illustration uh, but I digress um 
how has India, if it has in the last, you know, 15, 20 years, how have, have the politics changed there in a way that influenced the book, if, if that is true? So what the book draws on has a very long and complicated history, and I'm going to let scholars and journalists speak to it. But I think for this book, what I was drawing on was, you know, just all of the material that you get in the news. So anybody who has been reading the news has the same material that I started with. For example, people getting in trouble for um, saying things on social media or forwarding Mm. a meme or liking a post. Um, And the the thing that we were just talking about of um, violence coming from suspicions that somebody is um, consuming beef, which of course the cow is sacred for Hindus. Um, And, you know, just the ordinary cynicism about the justice system and the police system, the Mm -hmm. idea of, you know, police brutality where there's a character Mm. in the book who is injured in an instance of such brutality so all of this was just you know an accumulation of years and years of reading the news of hearing people around me talk about what's going on listening to their perspectives listening to what people are worried about I think all of that filtered into the book and the character of Lovely who is a trans woman and and tell me if I'm pronouncing this correctly is it Hijra? A hijra, yeah. A hijra. So, and can you, um, can you give? Is that just the equivalent of? Does of it translate to? Does that translate to as English? trans person? Or so I think, I think it's a little difficult to try and map these categories directly onto um, American or or Western categories. Right. Hijra, again, there are scholars who have done tremendous work on Hijra communities, and um, I'm sure anybody listening who would like to read can can look them up. But um, it's, it's a community which is at the intersection of gender, religion, and very importantly, class. You know, it's a community mm. where Lovely, for instance, is somebody who, on the one hand, is believed to have this close connection to God. She talks about it um, as, you know, having a direct telephone line to God. But um, so she's welcomed to to bless newborns, to bless couples who are getting married. Um, but at the same time, she's reviled. You know, there's there's a scene in the book where she stands in front of a, a store, a business, and the business owner tells her to move away because customers won't come if she's right there. Mm-hmm. So she lives in this strange, marginal position of some reverence and some hostility. And the thing that I wanted to write in Lovely's character was, you know, this person who really feels the full might of the oppressive state upon them. This character who feels the robust, unrelenting discrimination of this society still says, you know what, I'm not going to accept it. I'm going to move forward and chase this wild dream, which none of you have the courage to to chase. And I'm going to do it with my humor and my spirit intact. And... and 
one of the things that I love most about Lovely's chapters is just the way they sound in my head. And mm-hmm. that kind of sing song Bengali that you, you captured, did how did you land on that that pacing and the present tense of it? The cadence. The cadence yeah. of it. Did it come mm-hmm. naturally or were you trying to capture some essence of the language that would be able to be recognized by someone in the English speaker's ear? You know, English has such a complicated colonial history in India. Um, It used to be, of course, the language of the colonizer, and now it's the language of the elite. And um, when I was a kid, for instance, I absorbed really early the lesson that I had to learn English. I had to get better at English in order to do well in school and, you know, get opportunities later in life. So it has this quality of aspiration and striving, which I really wanted to get in Lovely's voice as well. You know, she's someone Mm -hmm. who, when she's chasing these roles and reading scripts, she she realizes that she has to read these scripts in English to get the desired roles. So she's trying very hard to learn English. She's not fully there yet, but she has this marvelous kind of gorgeous hybrid, which has humor and sentiment and pathos. And I wanted to get that in her voice. Has, I actually have a different question, but as a side note, has there been any discussion about film or TV options for this? Because I would love to see this turned into a film good, or yeah. a show. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to talk okay. about it, okay. but oh, we're good. definitely in discussion. Oh, that's an excellent response. <laughs> well, I'll, take we will, I'll take that. We'll put out a Google <laughs> alert for a burning and wait for the uh, release. <laughs> so, Megha, in one of Jivan's chapters towards the end of the book and and... For those of you who haven't read it yet, Jivan is the young woman who's imprisoned and virtually on death row. And she has these two statements where she says, here it is, a special cell for the soon to be dead, a room under the ground for the ones who will be soil. But they cannot kill me before they kill me. And I kind of feel like that summarizes the entire book in many ways. Mm-hmm. Like, this, like you're talking about this aspiration Mm-hmm. For the characters who find themselves in, in incredibly dire straits and yet refuse to be killed before their time. And I, I don't know if, if that resonates if you with remember you. If I'm writing totally that making sentence. that. I know, I don't, I was just, though, that little section was so powerful. I didn't know, you know, did you write that? And you were like, God damn, I'm good. When you wrote those <laughs> sentences, you know. Um. I'm so glad they they speak to you. Um, I, you know, I think you are so right that I wanted to write about this character who is facing these immense barriers. Um, She's facing such powerful prejudice. But in the face of all that, she's constantly trying to tell her story. She's Mm -hmm. constantly trying to push back against the narratives that are put on her that she doesn't agree with. She's constantly trying to tell her own story. And that to me felt like such a powerful mode of resistance that, you know, you can, you can do all of these things to her, but she's not going to give up. Um, And that's the, that's the spirit that I, that I wanted to 
write about. I really love how you're like, oh, did I write this? And <laughs> immediately feel proud. Yeah. Well, <laughs> okay. you know when you have those moments where you're like, that is the so, perfect sentence. <laughs> piggybacking off of that, there was this part, I'm going to read it. It says, um, so the character P.T. Sir. P.T. Sir thinks about this for hours until deep night has settled into the home, turning their furniture unfamiliar. And I mm. thought that was really, really wonderful because like all great writing, when a writer has put into words something that your subconscious has noticed. And mm. that was so true is that when night settles over a home, the furniture does become unfamiliar. And I'm, I, that may not be your favorite thing that you wrote in the book, <laughs> right? But it was just a little part that I noticed because I thought it it so represented something for me where I was like, she's named something for me. Like, and now at night, if I wake up in the middle of the night, I will mm. think that, oh, the furniture mm. has turned unfamiliar. And that makes me so happy, yeah. actually. I'm <laughs> right. sorry to interrupt, but that no. makes me really happy because, you know, that's the kind of, I mean, you, you know this, that is the kind of tiny thing that you tinker with and tinker with and you're like oh this is not quite right that's not quite right either and you keep working yeah. on it and you know that it's the kind of thing that nobody but the most attentive and most generous reader will notice so thank you no you're so welcome um this could be an impossible question to answer but is there any idea in this book whether it be so small it, but not insignificant as that, right? Where you're like, well, that is true about deep night in a home. Is there any idea in this book that like you still remember and, and have like pride about that or just a sentence you wrote that you're like, yes, that was, I, I, I said that exactly as I could say it. And that could be an impossible thing to answer, but is there anything that stands out to you? <laughs> She's hoping. <laughs> oh, that is such a beautiful question. Um, I think I really enjoyed writing the interludes you know and I don't know if they are really the big things that that have stood out for readers I mean you asked about it for which me I really yeah. appreciate <laughs> yeah but I think um a lot of the conversation has been around the the main characters which completely understandable but I think I spent so much time working on those interludes so that they wouldn't appear flat or simplistic or unnecessary, you know, even though they are short, I really wanted them to function as these uh, doors that are left ajar for a reader to see that, look, here's this world where you can follow all of these rich stories if you wanted to. You, you accomplished that. Okay. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Mega, we have a couple just kind of fun little punchy questions, like uh, like the chapters for you at the end of every author podcast that we do. Um, uh -huh. So we'll start with this super easy, not easy question. <laughs> what is your favorite, or I'll take two, favorite book of all time? Oh my God, that is an impossible question. I know, question. I know. I, I, I will give you more than one. <laughs> Oh, my God. Um, well, I really, you know, I really love the work of Jhumpa Lahiri. She's mm -hmm. a writer who my parents and I would read her together. And she wrote about things which I think I saw for the first time in fiction. Like she had a story about um, an interpreter of melodies, her first story collection. She had this story about people who are talking to each other during a power cut. And I don't think until that 
doing? I had ever read a story set during a power cut and power cuts were so common when I was growing up. We dealt with them usually every summer. So to make that power cut from a place of annoyance and irritation and turn it into what you kind of felt, which is... It is this place of solitude and togetherness. You can't watch TV. Mm. You can't, you know, spring off to your separate rooms. You're just kind of sitting in one room lit by a tiny candle waiting for the power to come back. It's hot. There are mosquitoes. But you start talking to each other. You can't really see each other in the darkness. And maybe (laughs) that helps. So I love that that was the first time that I saw this in fiction. Um, So, yeah, Jhumpa Lahiri for sure has been has been huge for me. And maybe I'll mention the book I'm reading, which is just blowing my mind right now, which is The Yellow House by Sarah Broom. Mm. Um, it's it's a memoir and it's research and, and journalism um, about New Orleans and growing up there Ooh. in this particular part of New Orleans. And um, it has received so many accolades and the writing is just clear and beautiful and full of heart and so nuanced. I really love it. Wow. Thank you for that recommendation. I love New Orleans, so I will absolutely be picking that up. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you, as an editor, if you had the ability to work with any writer, dead or alive, with your, <laughs> from an editor's standpoint, who would you want to work with? <laughs> oh my God. What a wild question. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, who would I want to work with? I know these questions are so hard. <laughs> they are, they are so so hard. I mean, I think again, I have to turn to a writer um, that that I that I really love. Who actually, um, her name is Chia Chia Lin, and um, she wrote this novel which came out a couple years ago or last year um, called The Unpassing, and it was a kind of um, quiet book, um, but I but I know that people who have read it have loved it, and it's this gorgeous, difficult story of a Taiwanese immigrant family in Alaska and the family tragedy that they suffer and, and go forward after. And it's the kind of book that finds these slanted, gentle ways in to talk about immigration and race and class. But you wouldn't you wouldn't say, oh, it's a book about this. You would say mm-hmm. it's a book about this family and it broke my heart. Mm-hmm. You know? So mm-hmm. I feel like that is the most powerful kind of story where it is so gentle. It doesn't does its work with so much delicacy and intricacy you don't even know what it's doing until it's over mm, wow that's beautiful description as perfect well, i know <laughs> <laughs> you should go into editing um and then the, the final and most important question of the entire podcast if you had to choose between a chocolate chip cookie or an oatmeal raisin cookie what would you choose Oh, my God. Chocolate chip. No question. (laughs) Excellent. Mm. Oh, Kate, this is so sad. You fall on different sides. I'm a chocolate chip. Kate's an oatmeal raisin. And and I am winning this season. And (laughs) we've only introduced this question this year almost as like a kind of polling. And I I don't know, maybe you're the 
15th person we've asked this to and I think only like um, one and a half one person said they'd eat oatmeal raisin if you took the raisins out <laughs> you know I mean so it's like or some one person would be like I know someone who likes oatmeal raisin but nobody's really picked oatmeal raisin strong feelings about the raisins very strong feelings oh my god so. there's nothing worse than anticipating chocolate and getting raisin I know so bad it's so bad I mean an oatmeal chocolate chip cookie sure but from a distance sure. those plump raisins think and they're chocolate chips and they're not? All right. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mega, thank you so much. We know that you've been crazy busy with your book tour and appreciate deeply that you took the time to come talk with us. Oh my so God. I can't believe that you two who have a million things going on are talking about me being busy. Thank you so much. Thank you for your beautiful and deep engagement with the book and thank you for for lifting it up which is which is what you are doing through this podcast thank you so much thank you for saying that you are i'm I'm like getting teary you are one of the sweetest humans thank you so much (laughs) all right we love you be well and we can't wait to uh, can't wait for your next book (laughs) thank (laughs) you so much See, we promised that we'd be sophisticated at some point during the show, but we needed Meg to do Does it. Does that for mean us. it's okay to start talking about the little puppy poos again? Um, I think we should let that run just at the top. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> but still, email us, you guys, if you have experienced this problem, if you have solutions to getting rid of small Tootsie Roll size alien free cookies podcast at gmail.com. Let us know. <laughs> That'll do it for today's show. That'll do it for today's show. But as always, if you are loving the show and you relate to these problems that we have in our lives, you can rate and review our show at Apple Podcasts. Please throw down a little five-star review. It means the world to us. And I would just like to say thank you. Since the last time that we have recorded, I want to say thank you to Rose Yoga and thank you to Kayla Neal for your five-star reviews that are very long-winded, and I love it. I love all these words that you put onto paper, and it's digital in front of my face. Wow. One of them, I said that she listened to the end of the show, and it was one of the episodes in which we didn't have a fresh review. And she was like, she, she said she couldn't let that it happen again. It can't be again. that way. It can't be that so, way. So what would we talk about? If you've got bystander syndrome right now, and you're like, someone else will do this for Kate and Catherine. Someone else will go and leave a review. Don't be the bystander. Don't have the bystander effect. You get up and you take action yourself and you go to Apple Podcasts and you put that review down and you review this show and so that we can shout you out here, which is the best three minutes of the show. Don't live with reviewer FOMO. And very exciting news. So if you have not become a patron of our show, you can. You can do it whenever you want. We are on patreon.com forward slash free cookies and... This is exciting. If you don't follow our producer, Lindsay Collins, on Instagram, you should. Which page should people be following, Lindsay? FNB Radio. Okay. How do I At spell FNB? FNB Radio. E-F-F-I-N-B-R-A-D-I-O. E-F-F-I-N-B. Radio. R-A-D-I-O. So you want to follow her because not only is she a fantastic producer, she has an extensive history in the food and bev industry, and she makes food that will either excite you or make you cry forever because your food will never look and or taste like hers. But here's the really exciting thing. She has just promised me, and I will hold her accountable, that she is going to come over to our home and teach me how to make a peach galette. And you can find this beautiful galette on her Instagram so you can get your little taste bud engines revved and roaring because if you are a patron of the show, you will get a video of how to make this peach galette. You know what else you'll get to take it lowbrow again? 
you will get a video about how to make Trader Joe's cauliflower gnocchi crispy because that is a perpetual problem. That is such a big problem. I put up a post of my beautifully, perfectly seared little gnocchis and I, I which know. resemble I got a like fifteen Kiona messages. Poopy. It does not resemble oh, oh in size. Bit, maybe? Yeah, little, maybe those are a little, little bit in texture. Bigger. Like if you stepped on a Trader Joe's gnocchi, yeah. it would evoke the similar feeling sorry, that I have I'm in sorry. the morning I didn't mean when to I wake up. You. That's probably enough for now, you guys. We are produced by Lindsay Collins of F&B Radio. We already said that. We didn't actually say, we, we alluded remember, to it. Remember we intimated. We spelled it out. Yeah, but we intimated. We didn't do that like, okay, we should probably sign off now. Yeah. Okay, bye everybody. Bye.